Hello there. Welcome along to the podcast. How are you? Glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. And I say this as a spring sun pouring in through the Velux window in my spare room onto my face with the, the UK announcement that we are going to come out of lockdown, or at least England has announced its plans. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson, I believe Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland will follow suit. But yeah, nice to have a time frame. For a lot of people, I understand the rationale that maybe we, it should be sooner for other people who are still beset by anxiety over health and a lot of the, the fear and concern that's been around. I completely understand why they want it to be slower. But as the Boris Johnson the Prime Minister said, I think there's equal arguments on, on both sides and no right exact answer. But there is a plan to come out by the summer, June the 21st, just after my 40th birthday. May have to delay my celebrations for that. But it's good news. And I hope you're well. I hope you're buoyed by that news as well. If you're in the UK or in a hope um, restrictions are easing elsewhere around the world. Some fascinating stuff about Florida, which you can look up. Their comparison with California, really positive, despite no second lockdown in terms of coronavirus cases and hospital admissions and stuff. So that was really interesting. Wherever you are listening to this, I hope you're all good. Thank you to you for hitting on the button. Thank you to the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene V, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations check out bno cheltenham on social media twitter and instagram got some cool videos actually with their latest bang olufsen equipment speakers and so forth on the instagram account for bang olufsen cheltenham and through serene av remember can source bespoke home entertainment solutions not just the fine bang olufsen equipment uh, as for the association with cyta plan I really appreciate that as well. Food-based supplement company that we've been using as a family for 20 years. Uh, Immune Complete 2 is my go-to at the moment, along with fish oil, which contains the vital, it seems, vitamin D3, vitamin D3 uh, for health and, and immunity over the winter in the Northern Hemisphere where light is scarce, daylight. We'll talk about that in the podcast actually a little bit with Jimmy Gemmell, who's had a, James Gemmell has had a second baby through this period and found it very... Uh, just attritional, I think, over over the winter months in the UK where it's dark at four o'clock in the afternoon and light not long before 9am. Um, so yeah, the, the vitamin D3 is a component, selenium zinc's in there as well, vitamin B12, they are vegan supplements. So particularly if you're a vegan, I know vitamin B12 is one that you look at potentially as maybe lacking with with the lack of animal product intake, sometimes more complex to get from, from vegetables. But uh, Immune Complete 2 for adult men, for menstruating women, it's Immune Complete 1 because I believe the primary difference is it contains iron, but also a raft of other supplements, whatever you're interested in at cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk. The discount code for 30% off your initial purchase and then 10% thereafter is Draper10R. So it's my last name, Draper, all capital letters, D R A. P-E-R, the numerals, one, zero, and then the capital letter R. Right, on to the podcast. It's one that was sort of born from a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a former Sky Sports rugby colleague, Alex Payne, who's a long-time presenter there, including, the, I suppose, the flagship presentation of the British and Irish Lions tours down under, and um, someone who's fronted a lot of the uh, Southern Hemisphere rugby for Sky Sports over the past decade or so, and a lot of domestic rugby as well is James Gemmell, and he reached out and said he enjoyed the Alex Payne stuff. And he's similar to Alex going on a new chapter of his career, moving away in large part from being on screen as a presenter to now working for Whisper TV, which I believe was co-founded by another sports presenter in the UK, Jake Humphrey, which we'll talk about here. Um, but what that they're a sort of production company that fits the gap 
outside of the mainstream big broadcasters. And Jimmy is uh, doing a, a sort of um, a job connecting people, a business role as an executive. So it's really interesting to get his take on the changing landscape of the media and his role in it and how perhaps there's there's pros and cons to, to moving away, but how excited he is about his new opportunity. And it's always encouraging for people who maybe go on a limb in, in a career like ours where there's not many sports presenting jobs if you're realistic across the country and the world even. So to have a see people plowing a furrow in a slightly another another direction albeit connected to the sports media world is really uh, encouraging I think for a lot of us who are journalists at the moment sports journalists in the changing landscape due to the internet coming to maturity and, and streaming services fractured sports rights really complicated landscape in lots of ways lots more opportunities but certainly not the kind of um, set in stone careers of the past have to have flexibility and malleable identities and be prepared to do different things which is what we talk about with Jimmy as well as well as fatherhood and the prospect of him returning to his native New Zealand as well. So here he is, fantastic broadcaster and now executive at Whisper TV. It is James Gamble. James, Jimmy Gemmel, we're just talking about nicknames and formal names, but you're very much uh, James Gemmel on here with your, your lovely trucker hat, which I'm sorry to say we won't see on the podcast. I need to get a video on for that. I love it. Um, but welcome to the podcast. How are you, mate? I'm really good. Thank you, Ed. Um, trucker cap, if uh, for those that can't see it and we're not recording video, Joe's Garage, which is a my favorite coffee shop in the world. It, it's in Queenstown, um, just down near the lake in Queenstown in New Zealand. And um, if there's a pick me up, if I need a pick me up in my mind, <laughs> I picture having a nice strong cup of coffee from Joe's Garage, a cup of Joe. Um, right on the lakeshore there in Queenstown. So it, it goes with me most places, particularly now because of the lockdown here. Awesome. I mean, the state of my barnet right now, Ed, is just, <laughs> it's not, I can't release it to the world. So I'm having to sort of schlep it underneath the cap all day long. Well, that's the one positive about an audio-only podcast. And I've always listened, basically audio-only is why I've done it, because I've always listened to podcasts in the car rather than watch the YouTube version, which is probably, you know, limiting in the sense a lot of people like to watch video. But yeah, that is the benefit. I always text people and say, don't worry about how you look. Don't worry about getting spruced <laughs> up. Well, I always, I love radio as well, despite working in TV. I love that, the power of, of audio-only. And it's kind of a passive thing that you can listen to it while doing other stuff, which, which is good when you've got a baby in the house as well, Jimmy. That's true. That's true. I've got one downstairs who's so far, and, and unless you, anyone else can hear anything, do alert, <laughs> do alert us. But um, no, baby's gone to sleep now. You're absolutely right. You know, the I, I found it interesting. I was really into podcasts and continue to be into podcasts, but found my time doing that was on the commute into work a year mm. or so ago. And, um, you know, when we talk about television, you know, working in TV, Ed, you'll hear people refer to sort of content where you sit back to watch and content where you sit forward to watch. And in sport, we would always refer to it as sit forward content, the sort of mm. edge of your seat stuff where you're really engaged. Um, but I find my experience of listening to audio, whether it's radio or podcasts, I find it to be sit back content. It's let your mind wander. It's it's passive, as you say, in, in, a, in a positive way. Passive sometimes has negative connotations. I love the experience of listening to an, an audio book, a podcast, a radio host um, in, in a, it, it, it reminds me and makes me think of a relaxing, mindful time. So yeah. I, I'm all on for that, mate. 
I'm a big, a big fan of podcasts. Actually, you mentioned commuting, and I'm still doing bits of that going into Sky Sports News. But also, um, cooking is always a good one for me if I can get a little yeah. bit of time. My wife always thinks that's why I've embraced cooking is I can get time away from the family <laughs> and bang on a Joe Rogan podcast or whatever and, and just listen to that. If you've listened to Joe Rogan, you're definitely overcooking the steak as well. Those <laughs> things are three hours long. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do it bit by bit. I work my way through like one per week. I think is uh, is good. But he's but he's flipped it because we're we're sort of talking about this before we started recording in terms of the media formats and, and often we've been told and it's it's always been sort of fledgling uh analysis hasn't it when we because the internet's been a new product but you know at times you've had different producers working with us saying look people only want to listen to five minutes what are you what are you talking about stop stop ask quicker questions rattle through get you know we want to wrap it up but then actually what rogan has proven not that everyone wants long format but people can dip in and out and actually that you know the, the beauty of internet content is that it's it's kind of free form and, and not limited by time constrictions which our jobs in traditional media that's basically what you're doing is, is trying to dance within a, a very strict temporal time play yeah i've been thinking a little bit about that and that's where i think maybe traditional media broadcast media sky sports in the example that you and i share is caught a little bit betwixt and between it's just trying to find its way through and you know it's looking at certain audiences and it's considering an aging demographic of people who might be traditional Sky Sports subscribers and turning their heads and thinking, gosh, we really need to start to appeal to the younger audience. Mm. And then maybe some of the data and the metrics suggesting that the younger audience have this shorter attention span and they're more in, you know, they, they like the, the snacking content or whatever they call it. And so we become slaves to a completely different, much younger master, if you like, and everything therefore becomes about the bite size where it sits on how it sits on social media. And I think that that does a disservice to, oh, A, to young people generally, to the people that they're supposedly appealing to, but also, you know, a whole swathe of everybody else. And the realization that maybe this past year has given us all that with a little bit more time on our hands, given the chance to just sit back again and listen or engage or watch something of greater length or maybe greater depth, um, there's real benefit to that and there's real enjoyment in that. And yeah, I think Joe Rogan was the first of many now to have tapped into that. And we're all the richer for it. Those of us that have the time or inclination to listen or watch at greater depth, because, you know, sometimes that short stuff is it's compromised because of its duration. And you and I know that what that's like on screen for Sky Sports um, and the ability to tell proper stories, proper human stories takes time. Um, and, and I really do appreciate the longer form storytelling narrative whether it's audio or vision, it's an important part of um, the learning experience, I think. Yeah, and I've always felt that you don't necessarily, if someone listens to 20 minutes and, and, and zones out and, and cuts out, it doesn't necessarily, it's not an indictment of what you should do and you shouldn't you know, want everyone necessarily to finish from start to finish. People can pick and choose what they want and some people may take half an hour of Joe Rogan's podcast, other people may sit for the three and a half hours. And yeah, it's interesting. The, the audio has you know, had a lot of sort of romance with me personally. I remember listening to, I think I was seven, Tyson Bruno won in this documentary actually on Sky at the moment and that was back in my dad's car I'd always thought it was five live radio but I think it was preceded five live radio the BBC sports station it was actually I think BBC two it must have been but I remember listening to that and, and that turned me on to sport on the radio and, and podcasts and then not podcasts but just audio um, yeah. entertainment and then and then obviously through that listen to five live still now and I think often podcasts can be the best of, of radio in a sense without the junctions and at the moment it's quite nice to escape some of the the news every hour having the news <laughs> blaring down your, your, your throat about what, what's going on in the world, which is beyond your control. And it can sometimes be a little bit anxiety inducing. So I think podcasts are kind of a, 
in a way you can learn as well in a, in a focused way, which you're not interrupted yeah. by a, a travel bulletin or whatever it may be. So yeah, it's, it's great. But what about you? Cause you're adapting in the, the new media landscape pretty quick, left sky sports, but you got a job. That's fantastic. You must be pretty chuffed, especially at the, the moment with what's going on that, that you got that so quickly. I, I am Ed. Yeah. It all happened fairly quickly. I'm like many people, my, my career, my path, my journey was impacted. Um, I don't think directly by COVID, but I think perhaps it was, it was, um, the speed at which the transition took place uh, certainly increased because of COVID last year. So I, I'm no longer with Sky Sports as they kind of reframe the way they produce their coverage of, of rugby union in particular, which is my mm. kind of area of specialty. But I think, you know, this is the first of a, a few different changes they may make in the years to come. It makes, it makes a good deal of sense in the competitive congested landscape of sports broadcasting when you, you know, you can't, perhaps expect to have the rights to all the, the sporting events you may want as a broadcaster. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, when I first came over to the UK from New Zealand, Sky had all of that. So they could yeah. justify having an in-house production team, which they could you know, serve as full-time employees and all of the bits and pieces that came with that. Now we live in a world where there's a lot more competition. Streaming platforms have emerged. Rights deals have been broken up and shortened. So what you find yourself, no matter who you are, even a major broadcaster like Sky, uh, not having the lion's share, it's more a case of picking up what you can. And therefore, you have sort of a business inefficiency in keeping an in-house team full-time. So anyway, mm. um, myself and my colleagues were were victims, if you like, of that changing landscape. Although I, I tend not to see it that way. I think this is about, like in many industries, this is about embracing the change of technology, embracing the change of competition. And my path has now shifted me across to the independent production space, which is exactly where I'd hoped I would go in time. Mm. And it's exactly where I wanted to go. Although this happened a little quicker than I thought. So I'm, I'm now working with an independent pro production company called Whisper, who have been a, a, a growing uh, company in this space for some time now. And uh, basically providing the service that the likes of Sky are doing away with or BT or ITV or BBC, you know, most of the major broadcasters now outsource their production for, uh, mm. specialty and, their production um, services. So uh, what that what it does is potentially allows me to do exactly what I was doing, but also opens up a whole new world. Um, independent production companies don't just work for broadcasters. They also work directly with brands, with sports teams, with athletes. Um, they're much, they can be much more independent in the social media and digital space. So I think they're better placed to answer the calls of the 21st century in the mm. world of content creation and distribution. So it's a really exciting time. Um, and my role is going to be focused on Whisper's growth in Australasia. So they've pitched up and won some work down in New Zealand. Um, so in time, probably not for another six months or so, I'll, I'll move with my family back home for me. Um, <laughs> for how long, we don't know, but it's exciting to be part of, of new growth and taking a new um, chapter to the industry in New Zealand. It's a bit smaller, so there isn't quite the same um competition down there and we we hope to kind of bring some opportunities down there so yeah it's it's really exciting ed well congratulations that that is awesome um are you is your wife kiwi or is she no your partner born and bred born and bred in uh, southwest london so <laughs> i'm i'm really grateful to her i mean we are parents of two little boys yeah Teddy's two and a half and toby is just coming up five months so for any parents out there particularly parents of young kids you'll appreciate that it's um, the job's one thing, the move <laughs> during a global pandemic, the flight, 24 yeah. hours, and then currently two weeks in quarantine in a hotel room with wow. a toddler and a, who will be a crawling baby at that point. 
um, that's kind of occupying our mind more than anything at the moment. And Olivia, my wife, is the hero in this whole um, Shakespearean saga, if you like. I, I'm um, following an opportunity and, and she's allowing me to do that by supporting me. And that's yeah. what it takes, I guess. And, you know, we both know that life in New Zealand is wonderful for particularly for young families. So mm. we're excited about that once we get established. But it is a big change. And um, we've kind of chosen to just embrace that and say, hey, this is one of life's unexpected uh, adventures. And I think we've all been confronted with with those in time. And uh, you can either push back and resist a bit on those things. And and particularly with a bit of time before it arrives, you can um, you can talk yourself into different places with it. But mm. our approach is to sort of say, hey, look, let's go make the most of this and, and let life's sort of journey roll out in front of us. It's, it's difficult sometimes, isn't it? Because there's a lot of talk and I, and I come across men of, of my age who refer to it as a sort of shared experience having a pregnancy, which it is, but it's it's very unique. And I think that sometimes we sort of see differences between men and women as it comes through. And one thing I've noticed is that from as I've got older, you know, if I speak to my, my parents once a, a month or every couple of weeks, I'm pretty happy with it. But yeah. my wife is a lot more interconnected with her family. So I suppose that is a challenge, isn't it? They're a lot more emotionally empathic, sensitive and, and often... I suppose lean on their family a bit more, a bit more involved. Do you think that is is that a challenge for Olivia? I suppose as you as you go down there, yeah, which most, is... yeah, most definitely. And particularly with such young kids, you know, we live. Olivia's parents live quite close to us. Obviously, my my parents still live in New Zealand, so we'll have a support network down there with them, which is which is very helpful. But you you can't replace your own parents, and you know, I can only speak as a as a husband watching on. But the journey that a new mum goes through. As parents, we both have gone through completely life-altering experiences in the last few years. But that level of support, physical support right now, literally physical support as we juggle a toddler who's got more energy than he knows what to do with <laughs> and, a, and a not quite newborn, but, you know, not, not you know, only five-month-old baby who has his own needs. So there's the physical support of having um, grandma and grandpa nearby. But more importantly, there's that emotional support when mum is exhausted as as she is um so is dad for that matter but uh just having people to talk to on hand who can who can lend an ear and um do those things that uh you know that you, you're just searching for a bit of help and a little bit of light in the darkness and, and, and i mean literal darkness we're coming out of a winter now that's mm. been tough for all of us it's been a challenging time no doubt about that with with all the changes in my little family so this is um it's a pretty significant move but by the time we leave, which will be the summer, UK summer, um, we're pretty confident that you know we will have we'll, we'll be ready for that next chapter. And I don't know. I think I think it'll be the making of us as a little family. I think we'll create memories for the boys in time that they will you know they'll be grateful for when they're older. You mm. know, I think back to the memories I had and the experiences I had as a young boy, and Olivia the same. And you know, we can all reflect back on the the choices our parents made for us. You know, we we'll probably give them enough time down there that, that you know, certainly Teddy will be old enough to remember it. They'll both have Kiwi passports. Mm. It's the sort of place they, you know, they'll, their dad's Kiwi. So they'll always know that much to be true. And they may choose to go back when they're 20 or 25 or go to university there or whatever. Um, mm. And the fact that they've spent some time living there, I think is, is going to be a cool little chapter to their lives. So, so we want to embrace it on behalf of them in this next little period and, and hope that they enjoy it. Um, and we're certain that they will. Yeah, I think it was, it's hugely beneficial. Actually, I moved around a lot as a, a kid. My dad was sort of a wandering doctor. He did various medical things. He was an anaesthetist. Americans call it anesthesiologist. And he, he then became a general practitioner. But we went all over the UK. We spent a lot of time in the States kind of going to and from the West Indies. And my uncle lives out there. And actually, as a kid, 
as a kid, you know, I, I was talked about with with people and, and sort of my obliviousness to racism to a certain extent, because I sort of had when you live abroad and you are exposed to sort of, I guess, superficial difference, you realize as a, as a kid quite early that it doesn't really mean anything. Whereas I think if you live in one place and you have a certain perspective, you can be allow yourself to maybe just be naturally influenced by tribalism a, a little bit but growing up you know going to a school in the west indies in a, a sort of shack on top of a hill where i was one of a few white kids but a lot of black kids and a lot of um, islanders and, and feeling really part of that community that actually you realize early that the humans are humans there's some good some bad but it's nothing to do with superficial characteristics like a skin color or a kiwi accent or whatever it might be yeah. and you sort of think i think it was it was for, it was challenging at times when you went well, i went to a lot of new schools i think i was talking to my wife i think i went we moved eight times in my first 11 years and then kind of settled. I've got a brother who's 10 years younger than me. So his experiences are very, very different. Um, but it's, it was oh. really good. And I think it makes you quite, you know, optimistic about human beings and, and, and sort of, I guess, courageous in a sense that you realize that, that, that you'll be able to adapt to situations. I think it is important. It's a balance between security, isn't it? And, and challenging, yeah. challenging youngsters, but that'll be, I mean, I've never been to my great chagrin, never been to New Zealand <laughs> or, or Australia and, um, not that I'm not, I'm not saying they're the same place, by the way. I know people are no, 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 resistant to that. that. <laughs> but my wife did it, you know, she did a traveling thing, and I think it was Fiji and New Zealand were her favorite places of the, yeah. you know, the, the standard sort of travels. And she said that she'd always like to, to go there again, and she said that I'd love it as an outdoors sort of person. So I think it, it'd be great for kids. Yeah, I think, Ed, knowing you um, as I do, I, th I think you certainly would. Um, but look, I think your point's a very good one. I, I sometimes, I, I, I talking of taking kids and and their experiences the, of the world and how the, the worst elements of humanity are all learned, you know, they're mm -hmm. all taught, they're all Im imparted upon from those of us that are of an age where we've become cynical and imperfect. I listen to some of the things Teddy comes up with, he's two and a half now and his, his speech and language is just flying through. And that, that, I think kids are the best humans like they're the yeah. best of us because we yeah. haven't had the chance to ruin them and, and i and i i mean that sort of in the in the best possible way of course life experiences shape us all um but they haven't had that chance to become cynical or the innocence is the most beautiful thing in the world hmm. um and so we've we feel a real sense and i think parents generally would do this but olivia and i feel a real sense of obligation in this period of their lives particularly when they're really young um and this is this has had you know, our decision to move and accept this role and go there as, as part to do with this. You know, they are going to follow us and their experiences are going to be driven by us. And so how we choose to embrace this experience, just in the same way your parents chose to take you and your family around the world, that shaped you. And that's a big, that's a big responsibility as parents to make the best out of these kids and give them the best opportunities. So we thought long and hard about that and had, had the role say been in America, um, at this particular moment in America's history, mm. I think we would have thought maybe a little harder about it, um, which, you know, I love America. I've got friends that live there and I would love to live there actually one day if life ever took me there and spend more time there. But right at this moment in time, I'm not sure it's somewhere I want to live mm. or would want my kids to, to be brought up at this point in time. New Zealand in this moment in time is a bit of a beacon of light for um, liberal attitudes, open-mindedness and, um, you know, freedom of thought and speech and all of those sorts of things. And the fact that I'm a Kiwi actually didn't play a huge amount into it. The, the role could have sort of been anywhere. Um, but we think this is a good place to expose the kids as they grow up to different ways of life, different culture, um, different backgrounds of other people. 
and uh, that's a, yeah, that plays a big part into into, into how we want to embrace the uh, the challenge. Is it a different climate there? You go back to Auckland, way is that where you grew up? Was that yeah, Auckland. Yeah. Auckland. So, to be honest with you, Ed, it's as far away on the planet as you can get. But my experience of having moved here as a 26, 27 year old, whatever it was, it's about as similar. And so here, here's here's me saying we're going to show them different cultures. There are very, you know, there are differences, of course. But New Zealand and England, New Zealand and Britain. But I've spent my time in London, so um, mm. you know, my English experience. Uh, very, very similar. You know, we've got Commonwealth ancestry. We've got shared history, fighting in wars. Uh, we've got uh, similar passion towards sport, social mm. life. There's a lot. There are a lot of similarities. Weather doesn't get as dark down there, I guess, but it rains plenty. It gets cold. Um, so <laughs> it's, the change is not going to be too shocking, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, you probably spend a bit more time outside. I think. I think most things are geared towards the outside a little bit more than than perhaps in the UK. So. Subtle yeah. differences, um, but the kind of thing that with young kids we think will play out. Like if we had teenagers and they were kind of just getting to the age, COVID notwithstanding, where they wanted to socialize with their friends and maybe go out and mm. start to experience life, you know, the buzz of a big city, maybe it wouldn't be the right time. But with such little ones, any time over the next five or 10 years, however long we're there, even if it's nowhere near that long, um, they, they will be having fun. In, in, in a pure kind of kiddie sort of way, which is great. Yeah, that pure thing is really interesting. Were you picking up on what you said there? Because when you try and explain racism to a little kid, as I did to a five-year-old last year, my daughter, because she had no conscious aspect of it. And then, you know, she just looked at me in this completely confused fashion as if yeah. skin colour would ever denote anything about someone's qualities as an individual and that how adults have managed to create that that picture. And again, nationalism as well, you know, rivalries, fem, you know, sexism, ageism, whatever the isms are, it's sort of founded in these weird generalizations about people that kids don't, don't see they take people as they as they find them as individuals which i think is yeah. is what we're all we're all trying isn't to that lovely towards. isn't yeah. that just the best thing in the world yeah it's, it's yeah it's fantastic and i think it's, it shows how adults can be so clunky and at the moment we we see it the polarization the lack of nuance in the conversations around covid you know people are either binary covid19 deniers or they're lockdown forever people there's not much of yeah. a nuanced conversation about how we can you know, pick and choose our approach to be sort of more more targeted about about doing the best for this virus. It seems to be that way anyway. You can't say there's no there's not much conversation in the middle, which again is why people like podcasts. I think because there's more time to elaborate yeah. the texture yeah. of, of, of of conversations. But it's interesting about New Zealand because it always fascinates me. Having spent some time in the United States, I did my masters in journalism out there. A lot of American friends is the cultural aspect of sport. And I think football or, or soccer, as you perhaps would know it in New Zealand and people would know it in America and Australia, is it, it, probably the, the one defined world sport. You could argue basketball is pretty close to, to that as well. Yeah. But in no, terms, sure. I know we have, of course, a Rugby Union World Cup and I play rugby at school. But it's always interesting to me that you come from that, that New Zealand, that island where rugby is the preeminent sport, and I know people will maybe say Wales is, is possibly similar, but I know there'd be people who are Welsh football fans who would maybe disagree with Wales as purely a rugby, a rugby, a rugby country. But is that a unique thing for you coming over? Because you talk about the rights with Sky letting some of the rugby rights go. And, and Alex Payne talks about that, the, the, the business drive not being there for, for rugby in the UK necessarily, the, the subscription not driving huge numbers. Was that, is that tough as a, as a man who was, that was honed in, in New Zealand, where rugby, you know, to think that rugby wouldn't drive a big consumer market was would be sort of sacrilegious. Yeah, it's probably in the earlier years of when I first arrived that it not, not so much caught me off guard. I'm aware completely of the the place 
that football holds in the public consciousness in this country and where rugby perhaps sits beneath that. I would say probably in the last decade or so, purely from an administrative perspective, rugby hasn't done itself any favours and it may, it may have made a case t 10 or 12 years ago for being uh, the second sport or maybe second with cricket mm. in terms of participation and certainly in terms of viewing figures and all the rest of it behind, you know, a long way behind football, but still sitting up there in that position. Rugby's, the way rugby's been run here um, and openly admitted by the administrators, it's become clunky to, to use that term. Um, it's become fractured. It's, it's a disparate set of um, governing bodies and rights holders who all want their slice of the pie. And what that's done is it's broken up the audience, it's broken up the, the broadcasters, and that's made it a harder sell um, for the likes of a sky to say, well, we'll chase by, you know, buying those rights or those rights or those rights. Whereas if it was a more unified, unified presentation, you could find an audience more easily, you could grow the game more clearly with, you know, whoever broadcast, you know, ITV, BBC. We look at the numbers at the moment, Six Nations. Mm. Yes, people are sort of homebound, but we're tapping on 10 million people watching free-to-air rugby union coverage. The passion is there in this country. Mm. It's just not broadly being presented um, in the right way to the broadcasters from the governing bodies. And I think that's where a lot of work is taking place. There's an, a, a wide agreement that it hasn't been managed particularly well. And COVID, I think, might fast forward some of the, some of the challenges it's faced. But to, to go back to your original point, Yes, it does. It does strike me, uh, or it has struck me as as odd that you could have, you know, an amazing international eighty thousand people at Twickenham, um, and then you could go to Richmond afterwards, and you'll definitely know that there was a rugby game on. But if you ca carried on on the train line into central London, by the time you hit Waterloo, any thought <laughs> you might see the odd jersey hopping off the train, but you're living in one of the world's great global metropolises. Mm. And uh, the fact that there was a game six miles down the road fades into insignificance. It's just one of many big things that were probably happening that day in London. So you go to Cardiff and you know about it a little bit more. Mm. Um, so it's, it's more accepting that it's, it's got its place in society here, less, less so broad, you know, in, in the broad sense. Whereas in New Zealand, if there's a game on, it's the front page, it's the back page, it's all weekend long. Um, a big game anyway, a big All Blacks game. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a difference for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. What what was the evolution of that? I'm not, not not it's not a sports history podcast per se, but it fascinates me because rugby and football come from the same origins, of course, in terms of public school games in the UK, which is private schools. That's a confusing term, but it, it was then you know they delineated them. I think 1860s, 1870 for rugby, wasn't it? In, in terms of the rules initially, where they separated into game you could yeah. handle the ball, a game you couldn't, and then things like Aussie rules football, American football sprung from that same kind of font we see these different games and how they've originated but why why was rugby in New Zealand because you're a son of an all black so you know all about about the the, the attraction and the romance of the sport there what do you know what happened in the history that, that made rugby preeminent yeah I mean it's a fascinating question and it's one that's sort of been looked into in some detail and, and myself and a colleague of mine a few years ago ahead of the British and Irish Lions tour of New Zealand four years ago now we did a documentary on, on for Sky um, which looked into some of this and then into the modern day outcome of it. But essentially, when you go back in time, this is about nation building. It's about identity. And you're a small country on the far corner of the globe um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So sort of 1890s to 1910s. And you are an offshoot of an empire on the other side of the world. You are you have been um, 
you're populated by you know British and Irish uh, expats, if you like, people being sent down there to run farms. There was the traditional Maori population that already existed. Yeah. Uh, there was sort of a an alliance. There was a peace that had been found. I don't know. There's, the, there's certainly a discussion for another day how that peace was found, but they lived harmoniously enough by this point in New Zealand's history, at least. Um, and so you're creating a country from nothing. And, and when you're doing that and you're trying to break away and these maybe Scottish or Irish settlers. Gemmell Scottish, is it? Gemmell Scottish. I mean, my middle name's Donald and my brother's <laughs> name is Fraser McLeod Gemmell. And my dad's <laughs> wow. name is Bruce McLeod Gemmell. I mean, the, the Scottish strain runs strong in New Zealand. So too the Irish, um, as, as, as I know, it, those are the two Celtic nations with the biggest presence. Um, so, you know, you've got a really strong sense of, of your, your British, your Irish, your Scottish, your Welsh, your English background. But in that moment in time, you're forging a new nation. Now, we can't conceive of that, even mm. only just over 100 years later. And so you're looking, and this is one of the historians told us in the, in the place that rugby holds, you're looking for something that sets you apart, that makes you a New Zealander or makes New Zealand feel like a distinct entity from the empire. And it just so happened that the combination of the type of people who chose to move to New Zealand, these Scottish or Irish or English or Welsh settlers, they were hardy people. They were resourceful. They were farmers by and large. They, they were outdoorsy. The very fact that they were willing to jump on a boat for six months and <laughs> say goodbye to their homeland and their families forever. You, could, you couldn't yeah. jump on the Thursday afternoon flight back via Singapore, right? Risk takers, yeah. 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 They were going to create a new life. And that in them, they believed that was something that made them outdoorsy, open-minded to new challenges and willing to try something new. And then you combine that by this point in New Zealand's history with, with some of the, the physical attributes of the Māori people whose, whose life was on the land. Mm. And you have some pretty good physical specimens as a very base starting point. And rugby union as a sport was just growing and it had been brought from the UK to be taught out there as a means of you know, spreading the word of God, as, as I understand it, that was a big part of its, its spread in the Pacific Islands as well. Um, because Mus missionary... muscular Christianity was it called? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there's a few different things plugging into this, but ultimately what we find is um, they managed to gather these, these young men who were off the land, who were all physically tough and they'd learned the skills of, of this new game, rugby football. And they brought it back to the UK and the defining moment is a tour of the British and uh, Irish Isles in 1905. And this team became known, it was on this tour that they first got called the All Blacks. Mm. And uh, they, they became known as the Invincibles, the Invincible All Blacks. I think they may have lost, they may, so it's not, a, technically it's not a perfect <laughs> description. They, they lost to Wales, I think. But they won something like 54 games out of 55, wow. something staggering. They came for nine months, as you would. And it was in that moment in time that the, the, the British Empire looked upon New Zealand for the first time as a distinct entity, saying, who on earth are these guys? And they have just come and taken the game that we created and invented and sent out to them to help spread the empire, to spread the, 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 the message of Christianity. They'll come back and they have absolutely walked through us and our best mm -hmm. provincial teams. England got done. Scotland got beaten. Um, and then in terms of New Zealand's identity, they returned as heroes. They returned as a, as a marker upon which New Zealand could say, and New Zealanders could say, this is us, this sets us apart. And then not long after that, we had the First World War, where New Zealand fought for king and country, and 
again served up many of her young men to fight and die for for, for Britain and and willingly as a as a, a very close ally. But at that point, just like in many other countries' histories, war has been a defining moment in shaping that country's identity. So they say the two things that really shape New Zealand's sense of itself are rugby and war. And obviously war has came again two decades later, but rugby has been ever present every year since sort of the, the 1900s, the very early 1900s. And it has gone on, as we now know, of course, the all black tradition is one of incredible success. Mm. So there's your starting point. And then success builds upon that. And it kind of just breeds more and more of a, a sense of deep national identity and pride around what the men in the black jersey have achieved over a very long period of time now. And now you've got it to the point where we live in a very different modern New Zealand. Oh, New Zealanders do. Immigration has changed the demographics. We're impacted by Western culture from the United States, from Europe, from the UK, but also from Asia. Um, very different looking New Zealand. And so rugby's place is this sort of central marker for New Zealand and New Zealanders is being challenged a little bit. It'll never yeah. lose its place in our history, but it, it is being challenged a little bit in, in, the, in the modern day. But it holds, particularly for my parents' generation and anyone, probably, to be honest with you, Ed, my generation included, mm. you know, when the All Blacks play and the All Blacks win, it, it's way more than just a game of sport. Uh, and that's because of our history. I should ask you quickly on that, on that note about Dan Carter retiring at the weekend. I know it's not, again, a rugby podcast, but where does he stand in the, in the pantheon of, of All Black greats? Um, amongst the greats, amongst the absolute greats. And in a position that, you know, the, the, the Welsh rugby fans always talk about the great uh, tens that, that Wales have produced over the year, the great out halves or fly halves or first fives, as New Zealanders call it. That's almost within a rugby team. That's the position where the Welsh Wizards have played and they were influential in the, in the great Welsh teams of the 60s and 70s. New Zealanders feel fairly similar about their tens as well. We've had some great ones down the years. Dan Carter is, he will, he will be unquestioned as New Zealand's greatest mm. first five, as we call it. And it's the most influential position on the field for, for rugby fans. It's the decision maker, it's the call, he calls the shots and then he will often execute, he or she will execute the, the moves as, as the ball comes to them. Um, to have done what he's done over the period of time that he's done it, two World Cups, countless championships with club and country other than that. And then he's gone abroad and won everything there is to win. And he's a lovely bloke to boot, which is, you know, and he's, he's handsome too. So that, he the is, yes. um, <laughs> Rascal. I mean, yeah, exactly. Rascal. Uh, yeah. One of the, one truly, truly one of the greats, um, you know, maybe even in the modern day, Richie McCaw is the only other one that New mm. Zealanders hold up on a similar standing. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal career and it, it, longevity as well. I mean, he retires, but he's nearly 39, which is, it's always strange when you see sports people still going on at my age, I'm 39. Kind of thing. Gives <laughs> you some hope. <laughs> There's still a chance, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I think that ship has sailed long into the, the night. Probably, probably sunk as well, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I was going to tell you, in the dock. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, it, but that's, a, that's an interesting aspect of, of sport, the, the, the heritage in New Zealand. I wanted to ask you about the media side because we're a similar generation. I think I started working in the media in 2005, 2006, and we're always told coming through that the internet was causing shifting sands and we weren't quite sure how it would come to, to bear fruition but it's interesting now you're working for whisper tv but for, how does this manifest in terms of what you're doing are you seeing yourself potentially lending an arm in, in the presenting the broadcasting for the company or is it in a purely executive role now that you're going to do 
A little bit of both at the moment, Ed, but I think the transition for me personally is, <clears throat> well, it's, it's the beginning of a transition away from in front of camera, probably. Um, although, you know, I think we live in a world where maybe we're applying binary, um, yeah. uh, binary viewpoint on things. I, maybe you had to be one thing or another previously, but I think we live in a world where Mm. You can create your own as, as exactly as you're doing right here and right now as we talk. You're creating, you know, your own story, your own narrative alongside what what other uh, jobs or roles or projects you might have on the go. Um, so I may I may be involved in some presenting, I guess, as part of this role. But um, my interest, I've taken an interest in the the, the media side of uh, sorry, the business side of media for some time now, just just watching really as a broadcaster how those lands, how the landscape and the, shan, the sands have shifted. Um, so I'm taking, I have taken a great deal of interest in not just the what is done, but the why it's done. And, and the, 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 not just the what decisions are made, but why have they been made? And the role that I'm playing for Whisper is much more down that strategic route, understanding where opportunity as an independent production company, where the opportunity might lie, who we might be able to work with and support yeah. how we can tell stories in a different and engaging way beyond the linear fixed schedule TV um, operations, which we've, we've come from, you know, in sport, live sport will always, always, always reign supreme because that touches a human emotion that, you know, you can't create, you can't script. Um, and I think the lockdown and the sort of viewing figures that have come as a result of sport returning have reminded us just what the jeopardy of sport and the release of sport can give to people. I think it's yeah, a hugely yeah. powerful tool. So we'll never lose that. But how a brand or a, a league or a team or an athlete um, maybe appeals to other fans beyond that live moment um, through the week and at times when the game's not being played, that's a really interesting direction of travel for for media and for content. And, you know, it's not new. The, the great teams in you know in the professional world Manchester City are a prime example of a brilliant organization who have engaged with fans on, on a global scale with all different sorts of kind of kind of content creation yeah um, that are completely beyond their live rights and it for them simple truth it drives revenue brings in new fans uh, and a production company like Whisper is able to support organizations like that to to deliver that kind of content so I find that fascinating I find it really interesting and I find it quite exciting. Yeah, sports clubs as broadcasters, I saw these sort of foot, foothills of that development when I was working at MUTV, even as a Manchester United fan, actually, in the about 2005, 2006. It was a little bit too much like state broadcasting for me yeah, at the time. Yeah, even, yeah. Even, as, <laughs> even as a United fan, I found like the sugarcoating of it a bit tricky. Yeah. So there, is, there is always scope for an independent analysis sometimes. And maybe clubs take that on board as well and, and, and open themselves to constructive criticism on their platform, which about a team's performance, for example. But Whisper TV for the brass tax of it, it's interesting because it's, it's been, I think, founded by one of the leading UK sports broadcasters of our time, Jake Humphreys. Um, yeah. And he clearly saw an opportunity for that. But would you would say Sky Sports come to you, BBC Sport, and say, look, we're going to get the rights to X, Y, Z. Can you produce this with directors? broadcasters mm -hmm. the whole package is that effectively what you do so it's so rather than a, a television company house all these people and, and employ all these people you're yeah. you're a sort of flexible um mobile production unit that's exactly right that's exactly right ed and the thing with whisper and and others as well for that matter but certainly whisper is we're not a sort of one size fits all approach if bbc or itv or sky for example came to whisper and said right we've, we've picked up the rights 
to broadcast this particular event or this tournament or this championship and we would like you to help us produce that but we do have a director in our team here at sky who normally does football but he's brilliant or she's brilliant so we want them to come across and we want them to direct this but we need you to do other things mm. we could do that if they just want a small plug-in special you know we've got some specialism around um, social media and digital campaigns so say they wanted this broadcaster wanted to produce all of the coverage for the event in the traditional sense but they wanted a bit of support on the social side we could do that or someone might come to us and say hey we bought the rights we've got the platform we don't want to do anything else other than that mm. you do it all then we could do that as well so that's a really interesting space to be in as you can imagine because you, then you start working with the broadcaster in this case as a client and actually it's about relationship building you both you have both vested interests in this thing working for the viewer so whilst the buck will stop with the broadcaster they're the ones who have bought the rights ultimately you're producing it for them so then you're starting to get into um a really interesting space around how you know we bring production expertise but we have certain uh, you know kpis if you like with the broadcaster so there's a lot of different pieces that fit into this jigsaw puzzle um, it's a little bit more layered than perhaps having worked inside the broadcaster where we just got told, right, guys, you've got the rights to, to screen the Six Nations, for example. Just go on and do it. Yeah. Um, th this is a little bit more layered. And in there, I think there is a lot of interest for me. And um, I can sort of see it, the agent stage I'm at being kind of the opening of a second chapter of my career, really. Mm. And um, that's invigorating and, and exciting. And, you know, people talk about there being a... Uh, uh, kind of a cap maybe on some people's broadcasting careers in terms of timeline on camera. And I'm not saying that that was anything to do with my, my shift, but I was aware of that. And I kind of wanted to own that storyline for myself rather than hold on longer than perhaps I, I should have and find myself five, five or 10 years further down the track needing to leave or maybe being asked to leave politely and thinking, gosh, I think I might've gone too far. And now I don't have enough of my career left to reinvigorate with a different yeah. way of doing things. I feel right in the sweet spot of of being energized to do something new. Yeah, we're, I'm really. I think we're all cognizant of that as broadcasters, and that's why it was really interesting, encouraging speaking to you. And, and you kindly reached out after uh, the podcast I did a couple of weeks ago with your former colleague, of course, co-presenter Alex Payne at, at Sky Sports Rugby, and how he's evolved as as a into business as, as well, while still doing the good, the bad, and the rugby podcast, which has been fantastically successful. But that is encouraging for all of us because it often in the, the broadcasting media landscape as a presenter reporter whatever your role may be you feel like you're sort of hopping from stepping stone to one stepping stone and eventually you are worried that you get stranded on one and and there's nowhere else to go so i think that's encouraging that you've done that and i suppose it's about evolving life changes and accepting that and maybe accepting that your dream job and this isn't always your dream job because life can change gradually but then you become a parent and you feel like you've been hurled over a waterfall so it's like <laughs> it's like you've gone down the rapids and taken the wrong the wrong trip and suddenly you're like you know everything's up in the air and you have to be open to to new things how appealing is that a sort of more regularized job i suppose in a sense yeah i of... have to admit I'm, you know i'm six weeks into it now and having my weekends back mm. is, is odd i've literally i reckon i could count on probably both my hands the number of weekends i've had off certainly in, in a rugby season in the last decade, 12 years, you just, you know, you know what it's like. You give yeah. up your nights, you give up your mornings, you travel on the weekends and it's the price you're willing to pay for, you know, following your dream and having a great, I mean, I just had the best time and I've made so many good friends. And it's partly that, that I can leave 
safe in the knowledge that I gave it a good crack and it was yeah. a great fun and that sometimes it's time for a change anyway. Um, so I'm excited by the prospect of some routine, I guess, um, with kids and all the rest of it and being able to mm. offer regular support um, <laughs> difficult times of the day and night for, for Olivia. Um, but, you know, the thing I think that I found energizing was it's reframed the way I'm looking, that the way I've looked at the evolving landscape of, of media. Now, for a while there, I kind of hunkered down. I was fearful of what the future might bring because it threatened to derail the path that I was on mm. at, at Sky. Because you're hearing all these people saying, oh gosh, things are changing. The way we produce and the way people consume their media is changing. And um, you know, Sky or whoever else it might be are gonna really look at that. And you can, can become fearful of that. Or as someone really brilliantly put it to me as I was going through this process, they said, you know, one of the key things is the obstacle, the thing that's scaring you, stare it in the face and look at it as the opportunity because you can hide from it or you can push it away and pretend it's not coming. But if it's coming, there's a reason it's coming. Whatever that, whatever industry you're in, if there's something that's presenting a block to you, stare it in the face and try and reframe it to look at it as an opportunity. And then that became quite clear for me. I thought, well, if they're looking to get rid of independent, looking to get rid of in-house production teams at Sky because this landscape's so fractured now and they can't justify it, mm. well, where where will that opportunity be? It will be in the independent space. It's a it's actually quite natural now that you think mm. about it. And once I opened my eyes to that and I realized I could take everything. The, the last twelve years at Sky don't suddenly mean nothing. In fact, mm. they are hugely important as I take that forward and work with an independent production house who need the insights from a broadcaster. They're desperate to know what, how to build that relationship. The yeah. minute I reframed that, it made a whole bunch of sense. If, if you're facing a block in your career, don't pretend it's not there. Don't put your head in the sand uh, and don't, don't pretend it's not coming for you. Look at it in a different way. And I mm. found that to be really helpful. Yeah, really interesting duality because it's happening fast, but at the same time, it's happening not as fast as maybe we predicted in, say, 2003, 2004, when you're at college and people talked about media convergence at the time, I remember, yeah. in, the, in the States. And maybe you've had this sort of spectre on the horizon, but you've obviously seen that opportunity develop for you personally in this way at this time. But it's, it's interesting. Maybe I perhaps had expected us to be more the internet and TV sort of more interconnected in a sense, they're still referred to as different things, which is, which is yeah. quite interesting, which I find funny, you know, that we've got certain rights. We can't show certain goals on Sky Sports News at certain times, but they're on YouTube. Yeah, I think those, those kind of nuanced discussions will change. Mm. Anything around exclusivity, I mean, within the live moment, within whistle to whistle of a football match, you know, broadcasters pay, as we very well know, and other major events too, extortionate sums of money to secure the exclusivity around those rights which is understandable. They want to protect that moment in time and they want to bring people into that moment in time where you cannot script or narrate exactly what's going to happen. As we say, that's, that's tapping into core human emotions that bring us back time and again to these events. But anything around that, those barriers, those sort of, that kind of land grab or that very territorial protectionism of, of content or of moments, that's slowly being broken down because I think we're all aware that all you're doing is hurting yourself if you're the rights holder to that. You need to get that story out there, grow that moment, grow that game so that next time more people want to be involved in the bit you do have exclusively, which is that live moment again. Um, you know, and there's there's lots of different examples of where that might be changing, you know, behind the scenes kind of documentary filmmaking um, in sports. We've seen a lot of that, the proliferation of that on Amazon and Netflix and 
um, with football clubs. And, you know, if you're filming fantastic stuff and getting incredible insight to these, uh, to these teams and these organizations and these personalities, and the idea is that you're going to release it as a, as a documentary at Christmas time, six months from now, for example, um, are you, are you just holding on to something that could otherwise engage people in a yeah. really big way on social media? And it's not going to stop them watching in six months. If anything, it's going to, if you do it correctly, you're not giving away your absolute goal, but you're just teasing them a little bit. It's little things like that, reframing the way we look at what's exclusive, what we hold on to, what we hold on to and what we release. Yeah. Evergreen stuff always gathers momentum later on at different sort of um, trips and drabs. I think people come across things and they gain sort of pockets of momentum and, and people's word of mouth, I think still a, still a big thing along with social media. What about the the day-to-day particulars of, of how your new job looks? You Have you sort of beholden to teams calls at the moment is it kind of calls no because you're a social guy clearly and you know i guess you like me probably extroverted and feed off that energy of people how are you finding that experience and are there bits of your presenting portfolio that you can bring into play i suppose the communication aspect of it the interviewing aspect is are there skills that you've carried over yeah most definitely ed and i think this opening few months at the new businesses has been really enlightening to understand um where whilst in very much the same ecosystem, how different the role of an independent production company is. You know, if you're a broadcaster, like, you know, when we were together at Sky, essentially the decisions were made further upstream around what it was that Sky would bid for and hopefully win. And then that information would get fed down to us in the production teams. And we would simply deliver that. We could set our watch to our schedule, even though it might be weekends and nights and things. We knew they were coming for the, for the whole year ahead, potentially, or the whole season ahead, as it were. Um, whereas you shift across now to an independent production company and you've got two sides to that business or I'm involved in two sides to that business. I'm involved in the further upstream pitching side. Mm. So looking for where the new business might exist, strategically placing Whisper within areas where they think there's an opportunity or particular partners we might be able to, uh, to, to join up with. And that's that's the biggest difference in terms of my career shift across because the other side is the delivering on those on those deals that you might win and that's production that's exactly like what I was doing at Sky so I'm very familiar in that space but over on this side we're building pitch documents we'll deliver to clients or potential clients so my I guess my presentation skills will come into into play there how's your um, point though my PowerPoint work needs a lot of work. Oh my God. So <laughs> that, that's things. terrifying to me. That would be terrifying. I mean, my wife, I wasn't really big on, um, you know, even just on email, like Microsoft Office. Mm. Uh, I, sorry, there we go. I've called it the wrong thing. Microsoft Outlook. Um, I was kind of sending invitations to meetings that were to include a, a team's invite. I mean, I was getting it all wrong. People were logging <laughs> on to my meeting, texting me saying, you're, it's your meeting, mate. Where are you? You're not here. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, these are the these are fundamentals of life that it's a bit like DIY. I've been trying to paint some doors this week. It's like I'm kind of a, a newborn sort of fold just struggling around that other people are, <laughs> my friends are also adept at and you know, things like that. And I'm just sort of like this, oh, like a 19th century person transplanted into the 21st century. That's it. That is it. So I've had to upskill pretty quickly on that front. Um, but yeah, look, at the end of the day, it's, um, it's, it's what I've learned. It's all about relationships. And that's true, I think, probably almost anywhere in life. But it's very true in this new world that I've stepped into. It's about building the relationships within your own team, um, understanding what it is we're going for strategically and who works on what and where, 
but reaching out to clients or pitching for new business, yes, you've got to be good at delivering it, but ultimately this is a, a B2B business, a business to business business, if you like. Mm. So rather than winning rights and broadcasting them to the masses and taking feedback based on viewing figures and things, but ultimately you're only really accountable to yourselves. You are now being paid by a client to produce coverage, content, whatever it might be for them. And that relationship is all important. Um, that is the lifeblood of a business like this. So my role, whilst there may be some production elements to it, it's sort of the overseeing relationship building um, new business ventures kind of area. And that is massively uh, exciting for me. It's further, to use this, the term again, it's further upstream from where I was in terms of the de decision-making process and allows me to be more involved in the strategic outlook of a business and where opportunities lie. And I, I've always found that interesting. And, uh, and, and, I, and I'm, yeah, I certainly haven't been disappointed so far. I'm really, I'm really conscious that time is pressing. You've got two babies at home, but I'm going to uh, just ask you a couple of quick questions. If you've got time, Jimmy, is that okay? Yeah, yeah, go okay. for it. Um, it was, first of all, you, you learn something every day and I've, I've listened to podcasts the same. I've listened to Gary Vaynerchuk on occasion and the fact you just explained what B2B actually means is quite good because I heard that expression. And I was like, what's B2B? Well, what's, what's A, what's B? And I was thinking it was sort of like some sort of complex system, but actually it just means business to business, which is good. Yeah, which is kind of, kind of embarrassing but it's uh, it's good to be enlightened in, in that way but what about your ego as a presenter and perhaps other people's perception of your ego when you change roles because I think what I'm aware of is particularly people of an older generation the fact that I'm on tv is seen as they think I'm gonna be a millionaire they think I'm yeah. you know all this perception and I think if I when I stop doing this job because eventually I think everyone stops doing it you you wonder about how other people receive you, not necessarily what you feel internally, but do you feel there's a, a sort of friends and family sort of concern that you've you've lost your luster or what, what's the take uh, on it? That's, that's a really interesting um, point. I think probably friends and family have known, my close mates have known that the presenting was um, something I did rather than someone I was. Mm. And that was more driven. I mean, I go way back to my earliest entry into TV and I did a history and politics degree with a view to being a journalist writing was always something I was passionate about needed yeah. a job out of uni a friend was making a kind of midweek sports show on a terrestrial tv channel in New Zealand needed someone to make the tea and log the tapes and I needed a job and the two came together and I realized within about a week I, I, I said I remember thinking to myself oh I was 21 22 maybe mm. oh my goodness this is brilliant fun these people are creative they're ambitious, they get stuff done. We work, have to work as a team because we've got this live deadline every Thursday at eight o'clock in the evening, the show goes out and we have to be ready for that. And then you have a beer after the show goes out, we've come off air at 9 p.m. And then you wake up Friday morning and the work for next week starts again. Mm. And I thought, oh man, I can dance to this rhythm. This is fun. This is gonna be different every week. Um, my ambition was never around the presenting side of things. I was just fascinated by the storytelling that was sort of my background one thing led to another and i ended up going from the tea maker to the researcher to sort of a an ap or associate producer yeah. you'd go out on shoots and you're just help. jumping from those sort of pebbles to stones to one to one to another aren't you as well it's that that's that yeah. kind of how the careers are in in a smaller marketplace like new zealand certainly working for a network which didn't have the same resources is a great place to learn because you could sit there and maybe even say, oh, one day I want to be a presenter, but you realize that in the meantime, tea needs to be made, lot of tapes need to be logged. Uh, you need to talk to such and such a windsurfer who you're going to do an interview with or that footballer or whatever it might be. So you learn the craft 
in a very broad way. Now you maybe don't go deep on too much. So you need, I found coming to the UK, I was able to specialize a whole lot more in my chosen field, which by that point was presenting. But in, in, in an earlier stage, I learned everything about the craft of making TV at, at, a, at a thin level, if you like. So I appreciate and respect all the roles everyone has. And even when I transitioned into presenting, it was always, it was almost by mistake. And then I came to the UK and I maintained that interest in the broad production process. So I became very, I was always probably more so than a lot of presenters. I was always in the office Tuesday to Friday ahead of the Saturday show, partly because I'm busy. I enjoyed it. I liked sitting in on the production meetings. I liked to know how we were building a show and the story stories that were being mm. told. And then, you know, you'd go out and do the interviews and all the rest of it. Um, but I think having had that as my base and my grounding, eventually stepping away from presenting, I'm sure I'll have some pangs of, of um, not regret, because it wasn't really a choice, but pangs of missing that live buzz. Um, but I'm still involved in the television making process and, 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 and broadly the narrative and the storytelling of what it is we're trying to do as a company. So um just so be really, kind when you're assessing other presenters though that's the key yeah. you've got empathy now. <laughs> well i'll have a lot of empathy for when it all goes you know belly up in because <laughs> it's yeah. happened for me a few times. i know but that'd be but fascinating but i think in a way it sounds like a process that i think we'd be open to because a lot of us who aren't necessarily driven by the uh, cosmetic or aesthetic of, of presenting and more with the substance of like say journalism and storytelling and things like that actually i've you know i wanted to be a writer as well and my first job was in a paper in the states and then you evolve into different you take the work where it comes and i think in a way that being a parent is quite liberating because you don't have to think about yourself quite as much as you did before it changes your perspective and that's that's quite nice in a way and i think maybe moving off screen not having to worry so much about your hair you can wear your i guess you wouldn't wear your trucker hat for business meetings but maybe you do i don't know <laughs> but it's a little bit it's a little bit more you know free to focus on different things other than the the sort of yeah which is yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very good point um i think like i mean i i worked on some of the the events as a as a rugby mad kiwi kid my horizons were shaped by my background and probably all of ours were i don't know what your as a, you know with your upbringing if there was something you always dreamed of doing and once you got into presenting or if, if there is still something but i probably i mean i've presented rugby world cup finals i've made a documentary for the lions tour there's not a lot more that i wanted to do i'm sure i wanted to continue doing those things um and and thoroughly enjoyed doing them but you know had had my i don't know had my profile gone to the level where i was working on six nations championships in the bbc and you know that might have been more life-changing i was able to maintain and i don't know whether that was something i wanted or not yeah. i love yeah. the life i had i love the life i have i love the friends i have i love the experiences that working for sky gave me um but it's being on that lower profile uh, has never been a problem for me i'm not fussed <laughs> by any of the trappings that some might otherwise no. go for you just get quizzical looks where people think they've they're not quite sure where they place you from as quite often i get that where people are staring at you oh, it might be school, but because it, it's not like you know gary lineker on the bbc everyone knows it's gary lineker but they'll look at you and think do i know that guy from school or and they're sort of you can see their sort of thought the number of weddings that i'm meant to have gone to because they're like did i see you at tom and susie's wedding <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's that level that sort of level of, of profile which is which is great quickly before we go because some other broadcasters might listen to this because actually there's quite a lot of traction sometimes when i post these on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. How important is it an esoteric background for Whisper TV to employ 
broadcasters or or are you all going to be more of a, a jack of all trades i mean i've had a random very career obviously I've, I've done the rugby i came through with with did a bit of pitch side reporting for you guys the rugby department i've done boxing yeah. i've commentated on basketball i've presented world pool competitions for matchroom tv but you wonder at a certain level and profile a depth of esotericism is is kind of required what's your take on that at whisper tv yeah definitely true um true in terms of the the content that you're adept enough or experienced enough to cover. So in your example, there are half a dozen different sports, but also true in the skills that you bring. So you're hosting a podcast, you can report live, just in your example, you can on-screen present. Um, and if you've got a, a, a strong narrative storytelling mind and you would sit in on an edit and help an editor through and build a feature, suddenly you become more than the sum of your parts. Uh, and, yeah. and that's true for anybody who's aspiring. Um, and that was almost by mistake that I was able to build that skill set. As I say, from working in NZ, I kind of had three or four years before I moved over here um, where that skill set was just broadened by necessity. I had to learn. I had to, do, I had to learn how to hold a camera and shoot some things. Now, I've never used those skills, but it helped me understand, well, not directly, but it helped me understand sequencing when it comes to camera work. Like you need to get that angle, you need to get that angle. And how that to angle. frame an interviewee and things like that, yeah. And get yeah. cutaways and things like in an edit suite a day later where you're like, oh no, we're missing a shot. Oh, I just needed to get that, whatever. You learn all these sorts of things. And that's, you know, that's TV 101, but in an independent production company who need to provide a service to a client, if you come with a really broad base of skills, that's hugely, you know, you're hugely employable, almost, I would think, more so than a broadcaster who's looking for a very specific, um, like if, if, if you were to apply for a role at ITV, if they picked up the Six Nations coverage or, or, or some matchroom pool or whatever it might be, they might be looking for someone specifically in that role. But yeah. I think an independent production company would really value uh, diversity of skills. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because I think there was a specialism aspect to certain things, but you also think that look back and some of your most positive memories of your career working as a team closely and, and having that sense of doing a bit of writing for a package or, you know, checking out the, the edits for your, your story and picking it together with an editor or doing it yourself. I mean, as long as it didn't involve anything too technical with a computer, with my chimpanzee fingers. Was, <laughs> <laughs> my wife said that chimpanzees have entered the... Uh, the early stages of the stone age and i was like well, maybe i should go and spend some time with him and evolve with them because <laughs> <laughs> the technical stuff was never yeah, my forte <laughs> yeah but getting an understanding of it was always is always good and i think sometimes you miss if you're just doing the presenting role you do feel a little bit detached from it so it's nice to have that embedded embedded but jimmy be, i was gonna say be wonderful to speak to you oh mate it's been fantastic ed it really it's been great actually to sort of think about things i haven't thought about for a little while um and well done on asking, you know, going down the, the kind of the rabbit hole with some of that stuff, because I think we're all thinking about um, how we how we maneuver our way through a really quickly changing world. Mm. And my initial experience, at least of, of this last few months, is it's not as scary as it looks. If, 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 if your path is blocked on one side, that means it's opened up somewhere else. And you've just got to have the, the courage to go and look and um, the open mindedness to, uh, to to chase it down and um, the opportunity is definitely out there as we come back to some sort of normality in the next few months. Yeah, we all had to accept the trauma of not making it as professional sports people at the outset. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's never, you just, you have to, you have to evolve as well and, and things like that. And it's, it's interesting. I've pivoted a little bit. We're doing a bit of writing for Sky Sports as well in, in MMA, MMA and boxing. And that's a different mindset. My, one of my favorite subjects at university along with sports science was, was English. And I think, you know, yeah. writing again and a different 
a sort of quiet, calm solitude. There's a nice contrast to broadcasting, which I've enjoyed doing that. And I think like for you as well, we're not limited to that one thing and that multiple identities is, is really key. And you're doing it. You're, you got your trucker hat, you got two babies, you got a new fledgling <laughs> career. What, what well, a lockdown it's been. I could just do with some sleep, quite yeah. frankly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try and get that, the, the secret of the naps. As, uh, as Joe Wilson said last week, yeah, we thought we were prepared for it with shift work, but we weren't. That's the thing with, with the baby sleep deprivation, because you never know when it's going to end. You always come off shift, but you never, you never come off shift that's with a baby. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. It does end, I'm told, but um, I'm, I'm <laughs> living on faith at the moment. Faith and coffee. Yeah. And as I say, we've got a six year old, we've got a little bed that we put out by our bed at night just to try and roll her in when she comes in at three or four. So that's a good, a good clue. But Jimmy, Jimmy, how can we follow you and your story? You're still on social media and people maybe contact you if they're interested in in working with Whisper TV. LinkedIn, um, James Gemmell, G-E-M-M-E-L-L, um, commonly misspelt, except for when I go to Scotland, not not surprisingly. Archie Gemmell of the, uh, yeah. yeah. Archie's obviously, I mean, my wife and I considered Archie for our number two. And then I thought, no, babe, trust me, unless we leave here, that is not a good move. Yeah. So LinkedIn's a really good way to get in touch from a business perspective or James Gemmell TV on on Twitter um, is, I'm I'm not a, ironically enough, as I look to produce content for social media, I'm not a huge social media user myself but of course that that's um you've got a lot on your plate though it could be a it could be a rabbit yeah, hole, i don't it? have enough uh, time to be spending too much time over on other platforms but yeah that's 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 a good way to to get in touch if you need to yeah how we use social media and how many people use social media is an interesting question for, for another day but i have read a statistic recently that only one in ten people are active users on it in terms of busy so it's a, it's a kind of curious yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of people who are very prolific on it and obviously people making careers out of it now so it's, it's an interesting dynamic part of the the shift in sands jimmy thank you appreciate your time ed it's been great fun thanks buddy really good to speak to james gemmel jimmy Previously, a long-time presenter at Sky Sports UK, worked across a number of broadcasters as well. Now, the executive lead, Australasia for Whisper TV. And that sort of evolution of the media landscape is really fascinating and where companies like Whisper TV fit in, perhaps as he's mobile, almost effectively as a, as a team, but a freelance team that swoops into server broadcasters, production rights and things. It's quite interesting how it changes. And as I say, potentially more opportunity for people as the landscape becomes more fragmented, but less obvious perhaps in the old school days even before sky sports where i work we had sort of bbc itv a limited output but now it's uh yeah it's a little bit unpacking and unpicking and hopefully that was interesting for you about changing identities changing careers and always positive isn't it i think when people are able to to do that and embrace it with the positivity that jimmy is there thank you to him for his time really appreciate that especially with two babies uh, under two or two and a bit and, and one baby who's five months old at home uh, really cool uh, thank you to him thank you to you for listening to it thank you to the sponsors bang olufsen of cheltenham and serene av specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations and as the sun continues to pour into the room here hopefully won't be uh, i guess having to, to rely too much on supplementation maybe over the next few months in terms of getting vitamin D, but obviously the rest of the trace elements that my father, Dr. Mark Draper, advocates will be taking my supplements from Cytoplan, my immune complete. If you would like to order supplements with a family discount, be, feel free to do so. Head to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk. The discount code is Draper10R, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero 
and then the capital letter R. Absolutely loving that sun. Quite warm out there. I just took the rubbish out to the bins and yeah, it was nice and spring in the air it would feel here in the west of England in Cheltenham this morning. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening to the podcast. Really appreciate your time. If you could rate it on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to it on, I think there's 12 platforms, maybe 13, unlucky, lucky 13 uh, platforms you can listen to the, the podcast Sport and Life on. Predominantly, it is iTunes. So wherever you are listening to it, uh, if it's Spotify or iTunes, please rate it and uh, appreciate that as well. Any feedback you can send me, feel free to get in touch. Ed Draper 81 on Twitter, Ed underscore Draper 81 on Instagram, a sports broadcaster in the UK. And uh, this is very much a pet project to explore ideas that intrigue me and hope you've in, enjoyed the podcast as well. And uh, do let me know on an email if you've got any potential guests or anything interesting to say about the podcast more in depth, perhaps, and you can do on social media. Hello at drapermedia.co.uk. Thank you for your time, guys. Have a great week and goodbye for now.